Jackson in our first of two weekend intensives on Three Angels, One Message. Uh, we're taking a, a rather specific look at a particular passage from the book of Revelation. What does it mean for us today? Last night we started off with connecting the passage in Revelation 14 uniquely to the Seventh-day Adventist church. It's our rallying call. It's our profession of faith. There are not many, if any, other denominations that preach specifically on this passage. And so we, we feel like we are compelled to do so because we recognize its importance in today's day and age. It is a call. Uh, it's a call from God to us that extends from way back then all the way until now. Uh, I believe it will carry us through until Jesus comes back. Last night, we looked at how the gospel is presented in the book of Revelation. A lot of people shy away from the book, thinking that it's too scary or hard to understand, but rather we came to conclude that you can find Jesus, you can find salvation, you can find grace connected in that book, in large part because these angels start off being described as carrying the everlasting gospel to the whole world. So if that is a character description of the angels, then you cannot divorce the gospel from the book of Revelation. This morning, we looked at Revelation's greatest issue, and we, we considered how the first angel was a call back to worshiping our Creator, acknowledging Him as Savior. There are options out there, but the first angel says, be faithful to the one who formed you, shaped you, and called you into being. In a nutshell, that's the first angel. Tonight, we're going to look at angel two. I have titled this Revelation and the End to Confusion. Uh, before we get into it, though, let's have a word of prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news in your word. More importantly, we thank you for the good news embodied in Jesus Christ himself. Tonight, as we consider what confusion is, the implications it could mean for us, its fall and its demise, uh, we would ask and invite the presence of your Holy Spirit to help us consider these important thoughts. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I started considering cults, oh my goodness, that went in reverse order, so you get to see the end first. Cults and confusion. Uh, there's often a lead-up to cultic activity, and mind you, that's not occultic, as in paganism. This is cults. For example, Heaven's Gate. Uh, those were the people that were looking for the spaceship on the back of, I believe it was Hale-Bopp. Do you all remember that? I remember that. I think I actually got up one night to look for it. I didn't see a UFO. Sadly, that resulted in a lot of people killing themselves, expecting the, uh, the aliens to take them home. It was very sad and tragic. We can think of the Manson clan, led by Charles Manson himself. That was, a cult, that was cultic behavior. The man gathered a following, and we know that it involved uh, heinous murder. Uh, it certainly was cultic. We can think of the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, and how they hold themselves up, and, and whether you are on this side or that side and how the government handled it, when we look at the Branch Davidians, they certainly display cultic tendencies. And then maybe one of the most famous ones, Jim Jones. Uh, there was one time that I actually listened to the Jim Jones tapes. I don't recommend it. It's very disturbing. Uh, he recorded his entire final sermon, if you will, to the group in Jonestown as they drank the Kool-Aid. 
You can hear the cries and the screams and the pleadings as the man is encouraging them to go through with it. It's very sad. It's very tragic. And maybe we can think of more. When we look at cults, though, sometimes the question comes up, what leads to cultic gatherings or the figurehead at the front? What has been studied and what has been determined and that there's no reliable personality factor. Maybe you can find some overlapping in the cluster B groups uh, in, in psychiatry, the narcissistic tendencies, but by and large, there's no reliable personality factor. What the studies have demonstrated, though, is that there are certain situational elements that make people more vulnerable to cult recruitment. That would be loneliness, i.e. moving somewhere new, depression, like a failed relationship, or just a general <clears throat> uncertainty about how to proceed in life. In other words, you're looking for direction. You're looking for a, a focal point. Your world feels like it's turned upside down. Where do I go? Well, that breeds the perfect kind of situation for a person or a grouping of people to come forward and provide what you are looking for. What are those things that people often look for? Well, the myriad of solutions can include structure, often strict with penalties. You can't leave or else. Drink the Kool-Aid if you... It's a structure. That's a harsh penalty. Close social contacts, what you find consistently is that there's often a, a strong intention in distancing you from longtime friends or family. They don't want you to maintain those long-held relationships. You need to only find your close-knit connections in the group. And then authority, of course, is often centralized. Regularly, we see a singular individual, sometimes a collection of other people, but often it's one, very centralized. This is all according to psychologist and cult expert Margaret Thaler Singer. Uh, she says that cults flourish during periods of social and political turbulence, that during breakdowns in the structure <clears throat> and rules of the prevailing society, that's where you see cults flourish. Well, where have we seen this? Cults were prevalent during the fall of Rome. They were, they were prevalent during the French Revolution, in Japan after World War II, and in Eastern Europe after the collapse of communism. Very turbulent times. Lots of people didn't know what had happened and what was going to happen and how to proceed from here. Often families had died. People had been moved either by choice or against their will. And so cults flourished. Well, what about in America? Cults in America flourished during the 1960s counterculture movement. This was, I guess, <laughs> emphasized or highlighted in part by civil unrest. We know that was a, a prominent during the 60s. The drug culture really came to the forefront. The sexual revolution, of course, put the pedal to the metal in the 60s. And then the weakening of the family. So we have to ask ourselves, can we see at least some of these elements present today? Well, I would suggest, yes, we can. One, civil unrest. Summer of 2020 comes right to my mind where we had uh, race-related riots that resulted in more than $2 billion in damage across our nation. Violence ran rampant. There were murders and blindings and assaults of people just walking by trying to go to work. There were autonomous zones set up 
in at least two of our very prominent cities. By doing that, they declared, we don't want to be a part of the United States. That is treasonous, unrest kind of language and activity. It was awful. January 6th of 2021 has been in the headlines. We saw a riot on Capitol grounds. It's not the first time the Capitol has come under attack, but this was unique in what led up to it, what happened that day. And I praise God it got settled in five hours instead of six months and $2 billion of damage. I'm grateful for that. I am. And then if you, if you pay attention to any kind of news, if you dig a little bit, you can see that uncivil protests continue. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, we have laws that allow it. Blocking roads are not one of those laws. Roadways are routinely blocked, and people have to be forcefully removed. There is looting associated with many of these uncivil protests, or just simply because of a serious increase of crime. You can see it across our nation. It's awful. The numbers are very startling, and it's very sad. Well, what about the drug culture? Well, decriminalization of marijuana is moving very rapidly. In fact, in recent months is the first time I've seen THC things advertised in Tennessee. Now, I have no idea where Tennessee stands, but the fact that they're advertising products now with THC, the active ingredient to marijuana, makes me think the laws are about to change if they haven't already. We know it's no longer considered uh, okay just for medical use. People want it recreationally. And the evidence that it is addictive continues to stack. It is addictive in nature. Forget the claims that it is a safe drug. It is not. And it's often found at the beginning of people who go on to harder drugs. It is. Opiate use and addiction continues to rise. Uh, we all know that. My wife is a nurse in the ER. She tells me about the frequent flyers that come. They're looking for, for Tylenol-3. They're looking for fentanyl. They're looking for anything, and she's gotten good at spotting them. Uh, it's awful. States, I haven't heard anything in Georgia or Tennessee. Uh, some of our other friends in other locations have set up what they like to call safe injection sites for heroin addicts. I cannot imagine injecting heroin to be safe under any description, but for them, it's safe. And there are some states that got caught sending out drug kits to users. If you look hard enough, you can find the pictures. You can find the evidence. It's there. Now, this is all rather important and good to know, and, and it should catch our attention, because drug overdoses topped 100,000 people last year. That's for the first time ever in our country's history. Of those, 79,000 were fentanyl-related for the age range 18 to 49 making it the number one killer in that age range in our nation. And it's not close. It outpaces, I think, the next three or four combined. That's terrible. There are now pastel-colored fentanyl pills coming by the pallet load from Central and South America. Maybe they're coming from other countries via those, those countries, but they're finding them. If you've ever seen the candy Smarties, they are colored and shaped to look just like Smarties. It's very dangerous because a kid is attracted to colorful-looking candy-shaped pills. It's awful. Well, what about the sexual revolution? Well, right now, men can be women who can be non, who can be who knows? Who knows? 
when it started with a, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle, that there is zero difference between men and women. And we don't mean that in the women are as capable. We are meaning that in the literal, literal, literal sense. Zero difference. Well, this is the inevitable result of it. This is the logical conclusion. Everybody can be anybody can be everybody. There's, there's no difference. Biological realities today are ignored or altered. And notice I put quotes on the altered because as you are born, so you are. Attempts can be made, but they never completely change what you start out with. The stories of detransitioning mount right now, contrary to efforts to keep them quiet. You can find them. They're horrendous tales of what these surgeries and what these alterations do to people at increasingly younger ages. In case you weren't aware, Vanderbilt University, just up the road from us, is currently going under state investigation because on camera, they admitted to double mastectomies on girls as young as, I believe, 13, 14, phalloplasties on girls as young as 15, 16, and hormone blockers at about 10 or 11. And the most scary part about it is on camera. The lady that was proposing it said, we're doing this for the almighty Moby Dollar. You can, you can fund a hospital based on how expensive these surgeries are. And it's all caught, and they're going to be investigated. We see and we are told now that pornography is not just something to overlook, but that it is good to engage in. It's good to consume, and it's a positive benefit to a marriage. Well, if you ask the millions of people who are addicted to it, with the unsurprising psychological and physical results, not to mention the relational uh, harm that it comes, I would encourage us not to consider it good, but it should be relegated back into behind the curtain and the darkness and a shame-filled room. That's how strongly I feel about it. And then, of course, maybe you have noticed that obscene material in schools as young, as young as kindergarten all the way through the university has made it to parents' attention, and you can, you can see them confronting the school boards. You can find the imagery in, involved in some of these books. These books are promoted as school reading lists, or they are placed in libraries. They depict pedophilia positively, or, and they also graphically show how young children, minors, can engage in sexual acts with one another. And it's in our schools. Uh, I would like to see it out of there. And this is before we even get into the ever-growing number of neo-pronouns like Z, Zer, Zem, They, Them, and Theirs. Uh, cake, you can identify as a cake, a cat, a demon, or a lowercase g, God. And how you say that's how people are supposed to call you. Uh, it's, it's rather startling. That list grows. I actually tried to just look up just a definite number. No one said it, but someone said very, very, very long list to choose from. Go shopping and pick what you think fits you. That's how one website advertised it. It leads to confusion amongst the youth. I find it startling that the most controversial question of 2022 is, what is a woman? People avoid it. People don't like to hear it. You get circular reasoning answers even if someone dares to try and give you an answer. 
And if you ask it, you are shunned, you are silenced, and you can get kicked off of major online platforms. That's, that, that's just crazy to me. It leads to confusion. It leads to an unsettling of society. It leads to the increase in, in anxiety and depression that we see in our young ones. It leads to thoughts of self-harm because who am I? As a teenager, that's the biggest question that, that people think. And when you are just, here's a million options. How confusing is that? I've raised three boys. Well, I'm working on my third. and I'm working on my second. My first one's gone. A little bit of experience raising kids has taught me definitively young children, developing children, work best in allowable parameters. And by that I mean safe parameters that sometimes they can lean against like a rubber band. They can stretch it a little as they explore their identity, but it's, your, it's the parent's responsibility to make sure they don't just break open the boundaries and go a-wandering in the wilderness. That's what we find in our society. What about the weakening of the family? Oh, this one's going to work. Ha. Marriages decline while divorces increase. This is inside the church as well as outside the church. Uh, I believe it's pushing 55% divorce rate in our nation, and that's at the same time that people are getting married less. <clears throat> we have more fatherless homes now than ever before. Some communities within roughly a two to three decade time span went from a 17% fatherless rate to a 71% fatherless rate. That's a breaking apart of the family. It is. Both parents work. Now, you might find this interesting, but there is, I'm, I'm fairly traditional in that I think kids need their parents more rather than less. That's basically the long-held understanding in parenting with children. More interaction with your kids is better than less. But now it is the norm for both parents to work and ask someone else to raise their child, and then you pray that they are teaching your kid ideals that match up with your home. Maybe you have to. Maybe you're not able to have a single parent uh, working in your household, but it, it does affect how the family operates. It does affect it. Now, you might find that it's interesting. I have this here, happy wife, happy life. Have we ever heard this phrase? Um, I've heard it. I hate it. <clears throat> Here's why I don't like it. I don't like it because it's purely one-sided. This phrase means that as long as one spouse, 100% in a joint union, if they are content, everybody else should be content. I would rather see happy Spouse, happy house. That's what I would rather see. Because when both husband and wife are giving 100% into the relationship and into the home, that's better. That's good. The moment one, regardless of who it is, said, you take the back seat all the way down to zero, give me the 100%. No one's happy. No one's happy. This is a lie that has harmed marriages. It's harmed families. Well, what about COVID? I'm going to throw in an extra one that they didn't include in the cult, but I see some similarities in aiding to confusion. That's the point, aiding in confusion. Well, one, masks. 
if you followed the timeline, January of 2020, uh, the virus isn't even a concern. March 2020, no one needs to wear masks. It was in our country. Blowing through communities in March 2020, that's when everything shut down. Masks are unnecessary. It might make you feel better, but no need to wear them. Then June, July 2020, roughly, it's now masks are a necessity, not even an option. A must, capital M, must. Then you get to January of 2021, and it's, well, now two is where you should be uh, layering up and putting on goggles and so on and so on. It's very confusing. Well, why is that confusing? Well, because at the same time that we were hearing that, businesses and houses of worship were shut down, but not universally. Walmart, Target, Amazon, Apple, Google, they stayed open and raked in billions. Small businesses didn't have an option. And tens and tens of thousands of small businesses were shuttered permanently. It was the greatest transfer of wealth in the business economy that this nation's ever seen, from the small to the large. Well, that didn't make any sense. If you could catch, if you could catch COVID at a small business where maybe 15 people are there at once, why should Walmart stay open where you could put 200 in there at once? It's just confusing. I'm just, I'm just pointing out some of the, the just confusing. Houses of worship were closed. You could not practice your faith as you had defined it according to your uh, inspired writings. But casinos were open. Pot dispensaries were open. Strip clubs were open. The porn stores were open. There was an obvious interest in closing one and letting the other stay open. Very confusing, highly inconsistent. I'm just pointing, this is very confusing. What about restaurants? Did we go to a restaurant during the time where, um, I have never noticed a virus. Pardon my cheekiness for a moment. I've never noticed a virus that only stayed suspended five feet or higher in the air. What do I mean by that? You had to wear your mask from the door to the table, sit below that suspended threshold, and then you could take your mask off and converse like it was any other day. Very confusing, very inconsistent. And lots of people noticed it and they said, why are we doing this? If I can catch it, if I'm safe at the table, why can't I be safe walking to the restroom? That was the general question and I can't fault people for asking that. And then the 2020 riots basically put the nail in the confusion coffin, if you will, or shined the spotlight on it. Because the riots happened right at the end of a couple of months of everything being closed. You were going to kill grandma, was the rhetoric, if you went to church. But the tens of thousands of people, shoulder to shoulder, screaming, spitting, throwing bricks, were not going to catch COVID because this was a righteous virus. It understood the cause, and you weren't going to catch it in those crowds, but you could in a church pew. That was the rhetoric. I remember it. I was frustrated with it. That basically, in many, many people's minds, kind of highlighted the confusion to such a point. They said, what are y'all doing? And then forget all the videos and pictures of those who enforced the rules but didn't follow the rules. 
Again, confusion abounded. What about religion? Uh, we are a religious institution. It's good that we also turn our, turn our attention to us. A recent study released by Lifeway Research, uh, the Christian bookstore, they also do research in other publications. They found this. In response to these statements on a survey, I'm going to share with you the results. One, religious belief is matter of opinion, not objective truth, just for context. I want to say 90% of the respondents identified themselves as evangelical Christians. There were a couple of outliers that said, no, I'm just an American, but I'm not evangelical. I kind of have a belief, but I'm not really that. Uh, in case you're wondering how that relates, uh, Seventh-day Adventist church is, is a part of that camp, if you will. In response to this statement, religious belief is matter of opinion, not objective truth. 54% agreed to that statement amongst evangelical Christians. 34% disagreed and 12 said they weren't sure. That's confusing. Evangelical Christians should be able to answer to this. One true God in three persons, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as three unique persons, but they operate as one singular God. Okay, 72% agree. Sounds good. What about the other 28 amongst evangelical Christians? But when you break it down, this is where the confusion rises to the surface. 59% of the 72 that agreed with this said that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. Perfectly contradicts. Very confusing. 19% said that the Holy Spirit can tell them to do something that is forbidden in the Bible. That God can tell you to violate his word. 55% said that Jesus is the first and greatest created being. 52% said that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Do you notice how when you, when you break it down, it doesn't line up? It's very confusing. What about this one? Multiple religions or beliefs are accepted by God. You would think evangelical Christians would say, I'm not sure about that. 64% said that God accepts worship of all religions. Uh, all. Uh, Islam, Buddhist, Protestant, Catholic, uh, the, the list can go on. All forms of worship are accepted by God. 64%. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. I'm actually surprised that the number of people who agree with this is as low as it is. 64% of evangelical Christians believe that mankind has an inherently good nature. Completely the opposite of what the Bible explicitly tells us. That the Bible is authoritative. 51%, only 51% believe that the Bible has the authority to tell us what to do. And then our last one, Christians and politics. 24% of Americans believe that Christians should remain silent on political issues. There is a growing move towards you can believe what you want inside the privacy of your home or your church, but it cannot come beyond those boundaries. That is becoming the interest. Just so you know, a little bit of nerdism when it comes to languages, the word for political or politics 
comes from the same root word, polis, in the Greek, where we get city, public. In other words, if you have an opinion at all about public things, you therefore have a political opinion. Everyone's got them. A fourth of the nation would like Christians to stay silent about them. Well, why? Why the confusion? Since the focus of our studies have been on the Bible and spiritual matters, we will primarily focus on the last one, on the religion. Uh, we will turn to our passage for tonight, and we will look at confusion as it's detailed. But first, let's ask this. Well, one, I believe that human nature looks for stability from confusion. I don't believe human nature, as God's created us, is content, happy, or well-off inside of confusion and chaos. Humans strive for the stability wherever they can find it. Sometimes that's in unhealthy avenues like addictions or volatile relationships, and I don't understand some of that, but people look for it. There's a, there's a desire for stability. And then why the confusion? Well, because with greater confusion, it is easier to gain control, as we saw from the cults at the beginning. The greater the confusion, the easier it is for a person or a groupings of people or an institution to come to the front and say, I will give you the stability that you want. Come to me. It's very easy for that. Well, when that happens, uh, I think history has given us some lessons on it. Let us look to the book of Revelation then, since we're looking at confusion in the religious realm. The book of Revelation describes two systems. It presents us with one of two choices. It doesn't give a middle ground. This is not one of those how-you-feel-it subjective kinds of matters. In Revelation, there is only one or the other. The book contains a strong appeal to men and women in the last days of Earth's history, an urgent call to what? commitment. That's what we looked at, uh, I believe it was this morning, uh, Earth's, uh, Earth's greatest, uh, Revelation's greatest issue, the commitment. Who are we worshiping? Who's first in your life? This appeal is summarized in the symbolism of two women in the book of Revelation. One, we're going to go through some of this rather quickly. In Revelation 12, you will see a woman depicted in white with stars and a crown and the earth and so on. Beautiful and gorgeous. She is also a pure woman. She is pregnant with a baby. And if we want to know what a woman stands for, we can let the Bible define itself. Jeremiah tells us that I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. That is God calling his people, my people, in the image of a delicate woman. You read through the rest of the Bible, and it's usually the chaste lady the pure woman, the faithful lady in the relationship. So white symbolizes that. The woman in white in Revelation 12 that we see is faithful to Jesus, and she is undefiled with false doctrine. That's the purity of the white with the stars. She's faithful to her true lover, Jesus. She is undefiled with the corruption of false doctrine. She is described as Christ's bride, his church, Throughout the centuries, Satan has persecuted and attempted to destroy the people of God because we see that the dragon was enraged with this woman. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring, that is, those that follow after her as being faithful to Christ. Her offspring, 
who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The bride of Christ, his church, it's faithful to him in every generation, but the dragon, that serpent of old, the devil and Satan, doesn't like that. You can expect his attacks to come in a couple of ways, direct and with options, if you will. It is good news, though, that God has always had a people who are faithful to him. The purpose of heaven's last day message in Revelation 12 and 14 is to produce a people so filled with the Holy Spirit, so committed to Christ, that they take up the call to share the everlasting gospel with the world. That's the people that God is calling. But Revelation 14 is also a warning against the confusion of popular religion. Why? Because what we see is that apostasy arises. There is a fountain of truth grounded on the word of God, grounded in his law, grounded in his truth, but then there is also a fountain of error, confusion, uh, untruths, near truths, meant to distract or take away. The devil's counterfeit system, that fountain of error, has been termed Babylon in the New Testament. It is a distortion of truth, and it originates with the father of lies. So let's look now at our second angel. This is, this is where we are, we've transitioned from the intro to the first angel, and now another angel, a second, followed after the first, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion, or in your, maybe your translation, the wrath of her sexual immorality. That's the second angel. Well, what do we know about Babylon? Well, John wrote the book of Revelation at the end of the first century. He was the oldest of the apostles to live. He was the last one to die. He also died a natural death, contrary to the attempts of the Romans. Uh, The stories go that he was, uh, they tried to boil him alive in oil. And like the three Hebrews in the furnace, he just kind of walked around and had a bath and they pulled him out. And they sent him away in exile, but he didn't die in exile. He died in Ephesus. Many historians believe that he lived out his days with Mary, the mother of Jesus. As many historians believe that to be how he spent his last days. We know then that at that time, actual historical Babylon hadn't been in existence for centuries. In 539 BC, the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon. The city was attacked on multiple occasions. It was ultimately laid waste. It wasn't around in John's time. Revelation's prediction of the fall of Babylon then cannot possibly be referring to the ruins of the ancient city of Babylon. It was already fallen. Uh, On the Euphrates in what is today modern Iraq. So it must mean something else. Instead, we find that Revelation is a book of vivid symbolism. In the prophecies of Revelation, Babylon represents a false religious system. Confusion, we will discover. Uh, John describes this more extensively in Revelation 17. You have to go forward a page or so. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed immorality, and with the wine of whose immorality the sellers on earth have become drunk. This harlot has departed from the faith of Jesus, because if a 
white, chaste virgin bride is the pure church, one would think that an unfaithful red harlot would be an unfaithful church, a confused church, one not adhering to clear doctrine. Here is a picture not of the true church, but of a fallen church. This apostate religious system has compromised the truths of Scripture. So what do we see in a nutshell? A woman equals a church. Uh, Because we don't have time to cover all of the other references, I've put it there in the parentheses. A beast equals a nation and a kingdom, because this is a woman pictured sitting on top of a beast. The white woman equals the faithful church. The harlot equals the unfaithful church. So what do we have? What do we have? Well, our church founders warned us about this. The founders of the United States clearly understood that if a church drew its authority and power from the state, intolerance and persecution often follows. It often follows for those who don't conform to the church's mandates because now the church has the sword or the gun of the state in its back pocket, if you will. These early American leaders had experienced the tyranny of the state church union in Europe. That's how we got so many of our early immigrants here into this new world. They were fleeing religious persecution, and they found room to practice according to the dictates of their own conscience here in America. That's why enshrined in our Constitution, out the gate, is this, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. As a side note, that right there is why I was personally cranky that churches were closed. The free exercise thereof, I understood to mean If in Hebrews, God says, come together as a religious community, I should be allowed to do it. It's just a side note. This is important because what this means is that at the federal level, the United States was not intended to copy that of Europe and more specifically England in those days. The United States was not going to follow in those shoes, was rather going to allow men and women the room to practice their religion again according to the dictates of their own conscience, not as elected bureaucrats or unelected bureaucrats decided. It was said this by George Washington says, I beg you be persuaded that no one would be more zealous than myself to establish effectual barriers against the horrors of spiritual tyranny and every species of religious persecution. You can read our early letters and you can read what our founding fathers wrote on the side. And they were religious men and, 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 and originators of our country. It's all over the place. We recognize the creator and the creator gives the rights and it's the government's job to protect the rights. But there was a limit to what the government could do when it comes to religion. And George Washington states it wonderfully. No one would be more zealous than myself to establish barriers against the horrors of spiritual tyranny and every species of religious persecution. Thomas Jefferson is the one who coined the expression a separation of church and state. That was in one letter, in one phrase, under one circumstance. Uh, Just a part of your history. You you, you can Google this. You can look for it. Uh, It was not enshrined in the Constitution. It was the opinions of Thomas Jefferson in response to 
a Baptist church's inquiry. But the idea remains that there is a healthy distance between how the state and the church work together. Can they? Yes. My example, and I like to use it, is the abolition of slavery. Churches preached in the Union states, all men are created equal. We should free the slaves. What they're doing is a sin against God. The southern states should not be allowed to do that at the time that they were encouraging people go support the abolition movement. That's a good way for people to work together. But note that that didn't mean that the government told the churches what to say. What do we see then in Revelation 17? What has happened where now we see a woman and a beast together in unity? Well, that woman made the inhabitants of the earth drunk with the wine of her fornication. She passed around her false doctrine and let others drink deeply of the confusing ideas, including let's work together to accomplish a common end in an unhealthy and and a, a false way. The fallen church passed around her wine cup of erroneous doctrine. The world became intoxicated with these false religious ideas. And you can hear them echoed. You can hear people taking up the call. This is why we see things like this, where, where the flags are put at a same, or perhaps one is the other, or so on. There are differing opinions about it, but some will preach from the pulpit, you need to go, and they will endorse a, a politician. And they will say, go for that person. Because that person, is, uh, that should stay out of the pulpit. It really should. Uh, I would also say that churches should not invite uh, politicians to speak from their pulpit. I know that's practiced in places. Uh, I, I would discourage it. I think that can certainly at least give the appearance of an endorsement. But we see this. The church has gained outward recognition by leaning on the world power, which in its turn uses the church for its own objects. Such is the picture here of Christendom ripe for judgment. And please note that uh, our, our first angel said that judgment has come right now. I believe this statement is, is being carried out in the present. When a nation turns its back on the principles of God's kingdom, it becomes beast-like. When the church leaves her true lover and looks to the state for power and support, it compromises biblical principles and it becomes the harlot. But what about Christian nationalism? Have we heard the phrase recently? Is it being discussed? I would propose two definitions for it. I would propose two. One, simple and straightforward. Loyalty to your native country, nationalism, and you prefer to see Christian ideals shape the culture. That could be a meaning of Christian nationalism, because that's just simply taking the words as they say it. Because we have to wonder, what is the alternative to the meaning of number one? Well, the alternative would be something like atheistic globalism. Uh, are we in favor of atheistic globalism? Well, one-fourth of the nation believes that Christians should be quiet and go along with increasing movements in that direction. 
as evangelical Christians, should we be in favor of a country that we love all of a sudden becoming what in opposition to this? Uh, Islamic? Uh, Hindu? Um, Wiccan? Uh, what are the alternatives? Because as Christians, I believe it's healthy for us to want to see Christian ideals implemented in our culture. If we didn't want it to be a part of our lives, we wouldn't be Christians. If we didn't want it to also be a part of other people's lives, we would not be evangelical in nature. I I would be in favor of the first meaning, is what I'm trying to say. The second one, though, is that church and government violate the intents of the Constitution by establishing a federal religion. You all of a sudden wield the Bible in one hand and you wield a secular law in the other and you hold them together jointly and you say, this is what we need to do. I would say that would be a violation. That would be this next one. God has called us to run rampant across the land and capture and take over things. It is God's directive that we do this. Go vote. I would encourage us to shy away from that kind of language. I would encourage us to be okay with the first meaning and certainly not the second. And then I would caution asking for a little discernment because these two meanings are regularly conflated in our conversations. They are regularly conflated. Someone like me might be meaning the first one, but I am accused of the second one. They're conflated. I would pray for some discernment when you're talking with others that we differentiate between the two. Be mindful. Why the warning? Well, because those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. We've heard this. Uh, this, is, this is a good saying. Well, let's look at really quickly an appeal to remember. In ancient Babylon, because that's where we get this word, in ancient Babylon, the world was commanded to bow in worship to a god of gold, including captured Israelites. Hebrews, bow to the God of gold. We know that disobedience to the commands of that pagan religion was enforced with the death decree. It is sad that out of the whole grouping of men there, or or women, I'm not sure, but people, three Hebrews said, I'm going to stay faithful to the God of my upbringing, to the God of my fathers, to the God of my faith. Three That's a very tiny minority, my friends. But that's what it was. The union of church and state in ancient Babylon and its propagation of religious falsehoods reveals how the devil will deceive multitudes in the future. Because in Revelation 17.5, we can see the connection from ancient to present. On her forehead, that's the same harlot on the beast, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. If she's a mother, that means she has daughters. That means religious confusion is everywhere. There's multiples of them. Don't chase down a singular source. We should pray for discernment. But here we see the name of this unfaithful bride. Babylon the Great. Our passage cannot possibly be talking about literal Babylon. It is instead talking about spiritual Babylon. Spiritual confusion, not the, the middle of Iraq. That's what we're talking about today. 
an apostate religious system departing from the pure teaching of God's word. It will introduce, it has introduced into Christianity many of the teachings of Old Testament Babylon. The paganism, the confusion, the, the intoxicating smells and bells and sounds and, and actions and sweet words that fall upon the ears and it makes us feel so good. And then we leave and we go, I'm just as empty as when I walked in. We find it today. It's true. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. This prophecy is talking about a departure from the faith of Scripture, and false doctrines would enter the church through false religious systems identified as Babylon. Where do we get this word Babylon from, and why do we connect it to confusion? Well, in in ancient history, after the flood, Genesis records that when the people of that day did not trust the God who sent the flood to then be true to his promise, I won't flood the earth again, they took matters into their own hands and said, we will build a tower to the heavens. It was a direct challenge to God, their trust in him and his promise to them. But when God came down and investigated what they were doing, he was not pleased. And so what he did to halt their progress was to mix up the languages. That started what has now led to all of the hundreds of languages and dialects we have today. It started right there, the Tower of Babel. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. They had turned from God's promise of protection to a human plan to protect themselves. Are we making the same mistake today is what I want to know. Are we making the same mistake? When you think of Babylon, think of confusion. In the same way that we call little toddlers that are learning how to say mama and dada, they are babbling, right? When someone is speaking nonsense for a host of reasons, we use the same phrase. They are babbling. That's the root to our word, Babylon. Because when religion becomes confused, Babylon, truth becomes distorted. And human opinions are then elevated above God's word. It's nothing more than babbling or Babylon. I would encourage us, instead of allowing our religion to become confused, rather than looking for the distorted truths out there, we should instead look to have truth stand in stark contrast to the error. Truth stands in contrast. When God's truth is clearly preached, it's not babbling. It is proclaiming. There is a major difference between proclaiming truth and babbling falsehood. Part of that is, where is the emphasis coming from? Is it the person or is it God's word? Is it tradition or what God has inspired the writers to record? It's a good place to start. This is why we have been so focused on studying from the Bible about what God wants to teach us. We aren't just taking someone at their word, and I would say not even pastors. There was one of the early churches, I believe it was Berea, was congratulated because they listened to what was preached, and then they searched the scriptures to confirm it. We should be following their example. Follow their example. Don't just take someone's word as gospel truth. Read and study the gospel for yourself. It's wonderful. 
Spiritual Babylon represents a religion that is based on human teachings, established on human ideas, and it is supported by human traditions. There is a form of man-made religion that is built by brilliant human religious leaders. Many of them are well-spoken, very charismatic in their appearance and their mannerisms and their talk. Sometimes I like the cadence of how they speak. I've tried to learn from some of the, the good orators of our day, but that's not what should attract us to them. That's not why we pick our faith or don't pick our faith. Sometimes what we find is that these human religious leaders stand in opposition to the power of the gospel and the truth of God's word. But does that mean that all churches are false? Well, I would say that we should trust Jesus at his word in Matthew where he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. If there is a my church for Jesus, that means there is a true church. There is a true faith. There is the lack of confusion somewhere. Are we searching for it? Are we seeking after it? Are we striving to find it is our call and our challenge today. It is built on a solid foundation, a church built by Jesus or a man-made system of religion. Those are the choices we are facing. That's what the Bible means when it talks about the, the fountain of truth versus the fountain of error. The two women represent this the church built by Jesus, or a man-made system of confused religion. Paul speaks again of the church, that he that is Jesus is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Jesus Christ is the only head of the church. There are some church leaders who dare to claim that for themselves. I'm the head of the church. I am the replacement for Jesus while we are here on earth. And oh, by the way, earth is going to last forever. That makes me the leader forever. There are some who say this. I am paraphrasing, of course. They express it more eloquently and soothing to the ears, but that's what they mean. Look to me instead of Jesus. My church will last forever. Don't seek after the true head of the church. Well, how does Babylon fall? As we read from our second angel tonight, that fallen, fallen is Babylon. How does Babylon fall? One, you choose a faith that places Jesus as supreme in your life. No alternatives. No job, no preacher, no family member, no practice, no journeying, no repeating prayers off of beads. None of that. Don't take an additional book in place of the Bible. Jesus should be supreme in your life. No alternatives. Well, we have to ask, have you heard that preached so far? I hope we have. I hope I've been faithful to that. Have you heard it? Don't get caught in the confusion of the world and take your priorities off of him. A lot of confusion out there. We went through the list. In the midst of it, look to Jesus. Choose to accept the Bible as the inspired word of God different than those respondents to the survey, except that the Bible is God's inspired word and has authority in your life. If not, you might as well put it next to Tolkien. You might as well put it next to some of our other writers, Spurgeon and the like. If you don't believe that it is God's inspired word, 
and authoritative in your life. Use it as a coaster, because that's about all it amounts to. It should be both. Seek truth instead of error. Challenge what you hear. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is not only expressed by Jesus, it is embodied in Jesus. You can't seek after truth without seeking after him. Him and his teachings are what you should adhere to. Challenge what comes your way and see if it lines up with the Bible. Jeremiah says in 29 verse 13, a promise. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Would you like to have the most successful treasure hunt anyone has ever experienced? Seek Jesus with all your heart. He's promised you will find him. You won't get to the X on that map and dig down deep and go, where is he? He has said, I'll be there when you look for me. And then finally, Babylon's time is running short. How does Babylon fall? Well, it eventually just runs out of time. It won't last forever, the Bible tells us. Revelation 14.8 says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Babylon's fallen. It's sealed. It's doomed. It's, it's inscripted on that death certificate already. Babylon's not going to last forever. Do you want to be with something that doesn't last forever? Do you want to be a part of an institution or a part of a belief system or a part of a practice that has an expiration date and your name's written beside it? I would hope not. I would hope not. This is stated again in Revelation 18. The angel says again, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now you should notice when things are repeated this many times in the Bible. She has become a dwelling place for demons. Do you want to be engaged in that kind of practice? I would hope not. And then a plea, come out of her, my people. If you have found yourself surrounded by religious confusion or tripped up in the past or you're struggling today, there is a plea. God calls you his. Come out of the confusion and into the truth. Come away from the distractions and into the stability of Jesus Christ, the rock. Get away from all of that mess and get into his loving arms. That's a call for you and for me. There is another warning cry, that call. Do you find yourself in confusion? Do you desire confusion to fall and truth to reign in your life? I think those are good questions to consider. We've identified what Babylon is. We, we recognize it as religious confusion. We've seen that it's every place, and we've considered a few of the tests you can apply to it. I would challenge you that if you answer yes to that second question, follow some of those guidelines. Open up Genesis to Revelation. If you don't know where to start, would I recommend to you the Gospel of Matthew or John? 
You can start in Genesis. It's a great history. Sometimes people get bogged down in Genesis. Read the Gospels. If you want to know about the church after Jesus goes back to heaven, read the book of Acts. It reads like a story. It's powerful what God did in the early church. And you read that he wants to do it today in his church right now. If you don't know where to start, ask me. Ask one of our other church members. We have resources we can share with you. We will give personally of our time to open the Bible and study the truth. We're not going to just sit here afterwards in the back or in the aisle, and I'm going to tell you something and then expect you to just believe me. Nope, won't do that. Come study the Bible with us. We would love to do that. Our interest here at the Ringgold Seventh-day Adventist Church is to lead you to Jesus through a study of the Bible, not because you're just coming here. We want to introduce you to Jesus. And then finally, how will you respond to that last call to come out of Babylon? It's going to fall. We can hurry along the falling process. Time is of the essence. There is an urgency to this call. How will you respond to it? I pray that each one of us here can respond affirmatively. We can say, yes, Lord, I want to follow you. Give me spiritual blinders so I'm not looking at the hot mess out there. It's a dumpster fire in our worlds, friends. Don't be distracted by the flames. Save that for camping. Don't let it get into your spiritual walk. Answer the call. Come out of confusion and into truth. Seek Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this message of hope and a challenge for us. We thank you that in the second message, we still continue to see the gospel portrayed in stark contrast to the falsities of what the world or other religious institutions have to offer. We long to find truth in you and in the Bible. Lord, I pray that you would inspire us today, motivate us to be faithful to you and your word. May we be counted among those whom you call my people, and may we follow after you faithfully until you come to take us home. We praise you and we thank you for loving us, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen.